Turns out the data is overwhelming. If you implement positive practices, bottom line performance goes up significantly. And then often surprisingly, that is multi-times industry averages. I've come down to the point, ignore this at your peril, because the empirical research, empirical evidence is very strong. Leaders face challenges every single day. That's why Udemy Business is bringing you a new podcast called Leading Up. I'm Alan Todd, the host of Leading Up and Vice President of Udemy Business. In every episode, I have conversations with guests who share the inspiration, advice, and research you need to level up. Let's work, lead, and live differently. We are bombarded with negative news. We hear alarming statistics about depression and anxiety, news of irreversible climate change, and stories about toxic workplaces with toxic leaders. Despite the negativity, developing positive leadership skills will help you live a thriving life, both at home and at work. Today, we're joined by Professor Kim Cameron. Kim's research shines a bright light on the best of the human condition. He's discovered a set of practices that will help you lead a longer, healthier, and more enriching life. Kim has won multiple teaching awards. He's been recognized by his peers at the Academy of Management for making a major impact on the practice of leadership. He's written 16 scholarly books on positive practices. He's a co-founder of the Center for Positive Organizations, a distinguished professor at the University of Michigan. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Alan, thank you so very much. It's, it's just an honor and a delight to be with you. Well, the pleasure is all ours and our listeners today. So, Kim, let's get started. You and your colleagues created this field of positive organizational scholarship, the study of flourishing organizations. How did you come up with it? You just kind of woke up one day with the Eureka moment. You stumbled onto it. How did this come about? That's a great question, Alan. Thank you. So for 10 years or so, I was studying organizations that were downsizing, consolidating, retrenching, laying people off. At 10 years, uncovered the phenomenon that was typical of 80 to 90% of organizations, and that is they, by and large, deteriorated in performance. Performance went south. Productivity, quality, innovation, trust, all those things really were in the tank. However, that left 10 or 15% of organizations that flourished after downsizing. I mean, they got a lot better. And the question became, well, what's the difference between those few that got a lot better and everybody else that didn't? At the time, I didn't have empirical data, but the term virtuous practices just came to mind as typical of those organizations that got a lot better. That is, they had really institutionalized gratitude and compassion and support and meaning and positive practices. I had a good friend and colleague here at Michigan, Jane Dutton, who had created a compassion lab studying compassion in organizations. Another colleague, been a friend for a long time, Bob Quinn, studying deep personal change. The three of us got together and we said there's something core or common about what we're studying. It took us six months to finally decide to label it positive organizational scholarship. It's not psychology, it's not happy thinking, it's bottom line results. Instead of just storytelling, uh, airport bookstore advice, we said we have to have 
empirical data, theoretical explanation for why this makes a difference in organizations. So the best way to collaborate is to create a center, which we did, Center for Positive Organizations. All the articles that you've written, scholarly articles, the books, the research that you and your colleagues have done around positive organizational scholarship, and you've teased out practices over over all this time. Can you give us a, a definition of positive leadership? If your actions as a leader help people dream more, become more, do more, learn more, that's a positive leader, a positive energizing leader. That is, other people flourish. Other people become better than they thought they could be. Not only do the individuals exceed expectations and even aspirations, but the organization itself also performs much better than anyone expected. So it's simply the ability to unleash the energy, the positive practices, the innovation that exists, but it's normally just not unleashed in organizations. So I want to go a lot deeper on that. But before we do, there are tens of thousands of books on leadership, right? And there's lots of stories. I did this and here's how I did it. And and you've always talked about sort of being grounded in evidence rooted in theory. Can you talk a little bit about how do you know positive leadership works? Great. Happy to do that. As we began studying these various positive practices, that is the extent to which organizations had embedded, institutionalized compassion, gratitude, high trust, meaningfulness of the work, and so on. In these empirical studies, leadership over and over again became the single most important predictor of organization outcomes. I didn't like that because there's so much attention paid to leadership. I would like to have some other really interesting finding, but leadership ended up being the crucial factor. Well, then the question is, oh, what is it about leaders? Turns out positive energy is among the single most important factors in leadership. And in addition to that, these various positive practices. So many of the studies we've done of organizations try to address the question, look, Cameron, this is soupy, syrupy, saccharine, sweet, happyology. You're telling me in post-pandemic crises and difficulties to not worry about profit, market share, customer satisfaction, stock price. I mean, come on. You're just, it's, it's frankly toxic positivity. You're, you're getting in my way. So the question simply was, well, does this actually affect bottom line performance? If, if you implement positive practices, does productivity go up? Does profitability go up? How about quality? How about innovation? Turns out the data is overwhelming. If you implement positive practices, bottom line performance goes up significantly and an often surprisingly that is, multi-times industry averages. I've come down to the point, ignore this at your peril, because the empirical research, empirical evidence is very strong. I've heard you talk about that. Can you talk about an example? Maybe I know you've got so many studies that you could, you could talk for five hours, but anything in healthcare, financial services, military. Thank you. Well, in all those industries we've 
studied multiple organizations. And among my favorite findings is a study of, for example, 40 financial services organizations. Now, of all the organizations on the planet that are unlikely to take positive practices seriously, it would be financial services because I have one goal. Show me the money. I want a return on my investment. That's it, period. So don't deflect me with other kind of factors. Well, in these 40 organizations, we intervened in these organizations and simply exposed them over a period of about a day to various positive practices, sort of a positive organization scholarship foundation. Here's a theory. Here's the evidence. And here are some practices that you can implement. We didn't prescribe anything. We just said, we're suggesting you implement these practices. Then we followed these firms over two years. And the question was, what happens to performance over a two-year period of time to those organizations implemented versus those that did not? Because we want kind of a causal relationship. Turns out those organizations that implemented positive practices were significantly better than those that didn't. In fact, positive improvement in positive practices accounted for 45% of the variance in financial performance. I mean, do you know anything that predicts Wall Street performance by 45%? So surprisingly powerful. You might expect it in healthcare. We took 30 healthcare organizations, essentially the same thing suggested they implement positive practices, followed them over a two-year period of time, and we simply kept track of nine dimensions of performance, which hospitals care a lot about. I mean, patient care, patient recommendations, uh, doctor-nurse relationships, recommendations of the hospital, and so on. In two years, across those nine dimensions, those organizations that implemented positive practices exceeded the industry average by eightfold. So, I mean, when's the last time you saw that kind of evidence, you know, and a variety of others, the U.S. military, I spent 10 years with one and two star generals helping expose them to this. I was just with the Marine Recruiting Command a couple of weeks ago. They were implementing these kinds of practices. The sports teams, I mean, I spent some time with a couple of professional basketball teams and so on. The whole point is, when people take this seriously, when leaders take this seriously, the outcomes are remarkable and the evidence is clear. So far, no disconfirming evidence. We'll be back after a short break. Stay with us. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. All right, so this is pretty exciting. We have some great outcomes. Now let's talk about how to get there. You talked about positive organizations, positive leadership practices. Let's talk about some of those practices. What, what can we do out there to practice today? Let me share a study with you uh, again to answer that question. 
And the reason I do that is because, again, without empirical evidence, I'm as skeptical as the people who thumb their nose at this stuff. I mean, I, I don't buy just some happyology story or some inspiring event. What's the evidence that this pays off? Well, here's just a couple of studies, maybe. So they took heart disease patients, people who had suffered heart attacks or are struggling with heart disease. Half of these people were assigned to keep a gratitude journal for eight weeks. Write in your journal three things for which you're grateful every day or the three best things that happened to you today. The other half of these patients did not keep a journal. Eight weeks later, just eight weeks they simply measured heart health. Those who keeping a gratitude journal had not only deteriorated less, their hearts had actually healed to a significant degree compared to the people who didn't keep a, a gratitude journal. Studies of students in high school and middle school, junior high, half of these people kept a, a gratitude journal, half of them did not. At the end of the semester, you simply do a variety of studies. Those keeping a gratitude journal significantly outperformed those that didn't on academic performance. Creativity. Those keeping a gratitude journal had more ideas and a broader variety of ideas. So gratitude practices is one simply on a regular basis. It might be one person simply puts a, a piece of paper or a note in a jar every day, even on bad days. What am I grateful for? Or keeping a gratitude journal. I know some companies who've handed every single employee a journal or a notebook, simply saying, this is your gratitude journal. Or families, everybody in my family has a gratitude journal, and so on. That's one practice. Let's hear another one. We got gratitude journals. So another one. Most organizations, when people do well, outperform expectations. They get rewarded. They somehow get a chance to speak before the big group and so on. And that's great. It's crucial. There's another factor that actually is more important than that, and it's very seldom managed. It has to do with contribution rather than achievement. Let me explain what that means. One study done by a colleague here at the University of Michigan, she took entering freshmen, simply asked each of these students to, to identify their goals for the year. And then she categorized the goals into two types. One type was called achievement goals. I want to get good grades. I want to be popular. I want to make the team and so on. The other kind of goal was called contribution goals. I want to make a difference. I want to have something to get better because of what I've contributed. She put people in two groups depending on which type of goal was dominant. Then she simply followed these students for one year, one academic year, measuring for example, how well people got along with their roommates, how many times they got elected to a club office, I mean, social factors, what their grade point average was at the end of semester, what their uh, test scores were, academic, cognitive factors, minor physiological symptoms experienced, got the flu, missed class, had headache, and so on, physical factors. On every single dimension, contribution goals were more predictive of positive outcomes than achievement goals. That is, it's what people contributed more than what they got. People often say, well, how in the world do I do that in my organization? One way is taking outstanding performers and simply having them coach, mentor, tutor somebody else. Your job is to help somebody else get as high performing as you are. 
I just interviewed a senior executive the other day, and that was his major reward. They had somebody who said, this person is not flourishing. We need her to flourish. We don't want to lose her. Your job is to help her become as good as you are. The contributions that get made in Delta Airlines is just another example. I love it. I'm a frequent flyer on Delta. Well, what does Delta give me for being a frequent flyer as a reward? They give me certificates which I can hand to a Delta employee, just a little certificate. So a gate agent or a flight attendant or baggage handler does something wonderful. I give them a certificate, which is points in the bank, free flights for their family, you know, and it makes them eligible for a company-wide award. I mean, I, I was going to Australia two or three years ago, went to the counter, and I said, I have to check in for my flight. The guy looked at the screen and he said, you need a visa to get to Australia. Well, fortunately, my assistant had printed out a visa. I handed it to him. He said, "Uh uh-oh, she mistyped one number in your passport. You don't have a visa. Well, my flight was leaving in like 90 minutes and had to give a presentation. I said, I can't wait till tomorrow. I've I've got to get on that plane. The two of them fiddled on the computer, made a couple of calls, called Washington, D.C., got me a visa. I mean, save save my life. Holy cow. I handed both these guys a certificate. I mean, everybody in the entire terminal knew they got a certificate. Wow, look at what we got. Wow, it was a big deal. I think Delta gets it right. Yeah, I love the concept of contribution goals versus achievement goals, right? You see so much about people always focus on that achievement. I want to run a marathon or we want to hit a sales target. And these contribution goals seem so much more empowering and so much more of the things you do to get to that goal. Yeah, it's true. So Kim, you've done a lot of research on uh, positive energy. I want to talk about these energizing leaders and some, you know, I've seen some of your work, positive energizing leaders that these amazing things happen around well-being and employee engagement and business performance, all the things that leaders are struggling with terribly today. Can you talk about what what is a positively energizing leader and what is the evidence of outcomes for being such a person? Sure. One of the things about positively energizing leaders is that we mostly know them when we see them. But I need to separate energy into different parts. For example, there is something called physical energy which when I use it, it diminishes. I mean, I get exhausted if I run a marathon, for heaven's sake. Emotional energy is the same. I highly intense interaction. I've got to have a break. Mental energy is the same. The only kind of energy that elevates with use is called relational energy. It's the relationship that occurs between two people. The extent to which that relationship is energizing, elevating, uplifting, life-giving. As it turns out, that's self-renewing. I mean, when we get exhausted in other ways, we often seek out people who uplift us, renew us, and that's relational energy. So when we talk about a positively energizing leader, we're primarily talking about one who uplifts and elevates other people in the relationship. And we can measure that in a variety of ways. The most common way is to ask people, to simply rate their relationship with others. Let me give you a specific example. I had a CEO of a big international retail organization headquartered in New York City. He just took over the company. He said, I've got 39 senior executives worldwide and I want to, I want to know who my energizers are. So 
every single person in those 39 was asked to answer the following question. When I interact with this person, what happens to my energy? I'm not rating them. I'm rating the relationship. It's relational energy. So it's perception for sure. Well, in that particular organization, he, it was very clear, maybe out of the 39, he had about a dozen who were enormously energizing to others. Now, it's also important to differentiate positive energy from just a personality attribute. I mean, positive energy is not extroversion, introversion. In fact, the correlation between that personality dimension, extroversion, introversion, and positive energy is essentially zero. I mean, we know people who are extroverts who are always the first to jump in, they're energizing, and sometimes it's just exhausting, for heaven's sake. On the other hand, sometimes we know more demure, less demonstrative people, but who give life to the system, help other people flourish. I'm glad you brought up the sort of extroversion and introversion because we know that a great deal of people identify on the quiet side, and yet most managers and leaders are these extroverts. And I'm wondering, Kim, have you ever studied or seen the people that are too much gratitude, too happy, too positive? Is there a negative version of that, or or is there an inauthenticity about that? There, there really is a. Uh, there's a ratio. It's a. Uh, the best research I know on that topic is from my colleague Barbara Fredrickson, who essentially said, "Look, all human relationships flourish when there is at least a three to one ratio." an ideal five-to-one ratio, positive to negative, three positives for every negative. So, I mean, there is a one in that three-to-one ratio. There is a one. It's not all soupy, syrupy, saccharine, sweet. I mean, I got to solve problems. I got to handle issues that are not going so well. We got quality problems and so on. But that always is more effective when it's couched in a positive environment as opposed to constant uh, negativity, focus constantly on deficits, focusing on what are the challenges, what are the issues. Most organizations' meetings are here's a bunch of challenges and issues, come up with, come up with some recommendations to how to solve problems. That's fine. That will put us into a state of, well, okay, we're acceptable. We're doing just fine. We're effective. But And I call those deficit gaps. But there is something else on the other end of a continuum. I refer to those as abundance gaps. How can we become extraordinary? How can we become the best in the business? I had one CEO who said, we're going to become not only the best in our industry, we're going to become better than anybody ever dreamed of becoming in our industry. I mean, he was serious. This was an insurance business. I had somebody else, another CEO who said, we want our customers and employees to think of us as the best in the technical aspects of our business. But then he said, we perform beyond all understanding. That is, we're so good, nobody could even understand how we got there. And one prescription is to have leaders at least pay some attention to abundance gaps. That is, how do we become better than we ever had, had expected to become? I've read some of your research. You've studied the cost of a cutthroat workplace. Uh, stress and anxiety lead to hundreds of billions of dollars in lost productivity and healthcare costs. Disengagement leads to increased absence from work, accidents, errors. Employee loyalty goes down as people quit more. 
Have you seen a toxic workplace become less toxic? I know when you study the downsizing, it seems to me the ones that you studied that were positive, they they weren't before the downsizing already toxic. So I'm just curious, does, have you seen this turnaround? Is it common? Does it work? The answer is yes, I've seen it. I'll, I'll name the names. A colleague named Jim Malazzi. Jim was made the CEO of one of the prudential financial companies. Now we're talking about financial services where, hey, look, bottom line performance is all I care about. They were losing $70 million the year he took over. Year before that, they lost $140 million. So in two years, $210 million in the red. You can understand why they hired Jim and just say, all right, turn this place around. Jim implemented a whole bunch of positive practices. It's a principle that I teach a lot called 1% improvements. I mean, just pick 1% and implement it pick another 1% and so on. That's what he did. So for example, one of the things he did was to ask everybody in his company to positively energize somebody else every day. What does that mean? That means compliment somebody else in front of somebody who cares. Had gratitude journals. I mean, a whole raft of things. I probably have 50 practices. Jim implemented a lot of those. In 12 months, he went from 70 million in the red to 20 million in the black. They won the J.D. Power Award for service. The year before, they were paying customers. They were giving them discounts to stay customers. The next year, they had 100% positive ratings by their customers. I mean, you never get 100%, for heaven's sake. They got 100% and so on. Anyway, the whole point is dramatic improvement, and it only took 12 months. Now, many others, some of these healthcare organizations I mentioned that exceeded industry average by a factor of eight, many of those were struggling. Profitability was in the tank. The climate, the environment, the relationships were awful. Turn them around. Well, the evidence is overwhelming. The reason why you're always so great to talk to is you've got the evidence, you've got the stories, you've got the examples, and you leave all of us feeling so inspired that we can go out and do this and change and become positive energizers. You've inspired me over many years. I've told you that and have made a huge positive, profound positive difference in my life. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you. I should mention one other, and that is Alan Todd is a hero in this arena. I am serious about that. Alan is among the best practitioners, the most influential positive leaders I know. I mean, the fact that he's created enormously successful businesses made a big difference in my life and many others. Now, I don't know if you want to edit this out. I, don't, I, I hope you don't edit it out because I really mean that. Alan is a spectacular example. Well, I'm, I'm positively embarrassed, Kim, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't even know how to respond to that because you're godlike uh, in my world and your course has changed the lives of thousands of people. I see it every day. I read the reviews. And so I got to ask you my final question because we asked this of all of our guests on the podcast. What are you curious about and learning now? So in this same topic, there's a whole bunch of things I'd like to understand better. But if we really do have a curmudgeon, a toxic leader, a person who sometimes are referred to as a black hole, they just suck the life out of everybody else around them. I mean, I think I have a little formula that I use to uh, give advice about how you handle a black hole, but I'd like to have more empirical research about how do you turn them around. 
Well, thank you, Kim. I want to say thank you so much to Professor Kim Cameron for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Alan. Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from you to me. Want to hear more from amazing leaders? Follow the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, such as Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. That way you never miss an episode. I hope you learned something new from this episode. If you did, please leave a review in your favorite podcasting app or share this episode with a friend or colleague. We love to share the wealth of knowledge. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you close skill gaps and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>